Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Okay, so I'm not going to lie. I was a little nervous to even email this person for this interview. But I put a call out for people that we should interview for Boss Barista and Bonnie Amor, who we interviewed in an episode a couple weeks back, suggested that I reach out to Salejo. If you don't know who Salejo is, please just stop this podcast right now. Come back to it, of course, we hope, and go check out everything that Salejo has written. She is the host of Propaganda for Bitch Media. She hosts another podcast called Racist Sandwich and writes about food and the intersection of culture and dining stuff and restaurant worlds and everything that she's written is incredible and I was almost shocked that she responded to my email and agreed to be on this podcast. I could not be fangirling more, even though I already did the interview, even though we've already talked and exchanged emails. I'm still a little uh, overwhelmed that this happened. So I'm not going to delay it any longer. Please enjoy this conversation with Solejo as much as I enjoyed it. Here we go. My name is Soleil Ho, and I am a freelance food and pop culture writer, and I also host two podcasts. So those podcasts are Racist Sandwich, a podcast on food and race and class and gender, and Propaganda, which is produced by Bitch Media. The, my former co-host, Jasper, listens to Propaganda all the time, and <laughs> I haven't told her that I'm interviewing you, and she's going to be really jealous that that I get to be on the air with you. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the issues that you cover and some of the ways that you think about food and the restaurant industry on your podcast and in your writing? Yeah. So I was in the food industry for almost a decade, I think. I, I started in college, but I kind of worked on and off before then, too. And so I've always been really entrenched in that world, like as a as a cook, as a server, as a, you know, wait assist, like all of those sorts of positions. And, you know, the stuff you see in the course of the job, I like to say that, you know, it shows you the worst side of humanity, right? And because I have college training, too, like I went to college and I finished and I have a bachelor's and I took a lot of courses in like um, critical theory and race and sociology and all of that sort of stuff. And so it really gave me the tools to analyze my experiences and think about them in context. Like you think of of them in in terms of discourse, you know, in terms of Foucault, in terms of uh, colonialization and gender theory. And, you know, I had all of this stuff in me, you know, <laughs> and I just didn't know where to put it. And so Racist Sandwich has been a really great out for me just to talk about issues of race and class and gender with regard to food, which is also one of my greatest passions in life. What are some of the issues that you've covered in the past that have really like resonated with listeners? Like what are some of the episodes that you've had like the most feedback from? Oh man. Um, gender and fat phobia is a big one and you know, it's a, it's a classic one, but I think the way we talked about it was really good. And I really enjoy talking about mental health and food as well and just how 
our mental health affects the way we deal with food and eat it and cook it and just experience it. Um, think of what else. <laughs> I think, yeah, one of our most lauded episodes, I would say, was also about like Filipino food and just like putting it into historical context and talking about the whole food media apparatus of talking about Filipino food as like the next big thing and just you know picking that apart as a you know as a as a trend in itself you know talking about trends with regard to like ethnic cuisines like entire ethnic cuisines that was really interesting so i know i mean i'm really excited as i mentioned to you earlier that i get to interview somebody who also does a podcast and one of the biggest things that I get doing this podcast is that the issues that I talk about are like not coffee related. And I wonder <laughs> if that's like a pushback that you get too. like, how does this have to do with food or mm-hmm. what relevance does this actually have to the restaurant industry? And how do you kind of combat those perceptions? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of different audiences, right? And so what we do on Race Sandwich is not for everyone. And our audience is very much people who have some sort of skin in the game with regard to the food industry. And they're also often people of color or they're marginalized along like sexual identity lines or, you know, just people who are a lot like us, you know. Um, And so there are people who, yeah, believe that politics should stay out of food and all that nonsense. And so they can listen to, you know, the Food 52 podcast or something. You know, they don't have to listen to ours. Right. Right. That's that's kind of what I say, too, is that like this is just doesn't have to be for you and that's OK. Um, but <laughs> right. like like you said, uh, this is a lot for people who have skin in the game, who this affects every day. Mm-hmm. And it is funny because I also uh, studied sociology. I think you said you did, too. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny how many people I meet that have studied sociology and end up in food and coffee which I guess that's just that's just a pathway that has now been created. Um, so, Soleil, what's on your mind? What have you been thinking about? Like, what what are some of the topics in the restaurant industry that you see kind of being applicable to the coffee industry? Oh, man. Um, so right now, I think we're in a moment where we, we're starting to talk about class, right? Um, you know, one of the most magnetic political figures in the past year used to be a bartender, right? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Like, she is bringing a lot of solidarity among food workers, as far as I, in my experience, at least. You know, they're inspired by her because she actually did the thing that we all wanted to do, which is, like, turn our experiences into something that is tangible um, action and, you know, bring the sort of plight. I don't know. Plight might be a weird word, but, like, just bring that consciousness to the national level if that makes sense. No, that um, makes sense. Yeah. And so, there's, you know, she's very much like a DSA, like, f- favorite. And, you know, there's a lot of socialist rhetoric and tendency kind of manifesting through her, which is really great. And so, you know, we're having these conversations about how the restaurant and the cafe and the bar intersect with, like, a class identity and also just class analysis. Um, like, the idea of, People like us, you know, baristas and bartenders and cooks and waiters, like actually having any sort of political agency is kind of new. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think something that's kind of wrapped up in that idea, too, is that 
we don't get a lot of political agency, but at the same time, there's a lot of personal responsibility attributed to our group. Absolutely. So like, for yeah. example, yeah, like demanding better wages, like beyond the tipped minimum, for example, for bartenders and restaurant industry folks. And then the rhetoric kind of going backwards and saying like, oh, but this is your chosen profession. Right. Yeah. And there's that. And also just the very flawed idea of meritocracy as reflected in restaurants and food establishments, right? Like we, especially in in the world of cooks, we assume that the kitchen in the restaurant is one of the last remaining meritocracies in the United States, um, which isn't true. <laughs> as we all know, you know, when when like Me Too hit restaurants, um, when more people have been speaking out about discrimination in these establishments, we realize like, you know, it isn't a meritocracy. It's just as poisoned as everything else in our society. And, you know, like issues of class and gender and race intrude even, you know, upon our work lives in those spheres. And so it's really interesting, like, stepping back and having a meta view of, like, what is a restaurant and what is a bar? What is a cafe? And why is it the way it is? You know, what sort of society is it trying to make You know what I'm saying? Um, Because they just, all of them in their structure and just in the way they're organized, if you don't actually step back and examine the the way you're building this establishment, like it upholds a lot of like social stratification, a lot of assumptions about race and (laughs) assumptions about gender, you know, there's a lot to pick apart. And I think that is just so fascinating. Yeah, I really want to, delve more into that idea. Um, what what are some things that you see that are problematic about the way that we do structure restaurants and cafes? Um, I would say, I guess, guys, there's so many things. It's funny, right? Because there's so much and that's why there's like, I feel like there's just a million racist sandwich episodes because we can just, I mean, we could probably have like a dozen episodes on restaurants alone, just the structure of them and like what, how they uphold white supremacy and (laughs) uh, class stratification. But I would say one way is in the tip system, you know, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the show extensively, but just the way the tipping system prohibits people who work in restaurants from actually having any sort of agency in the relationship between themselves and guests. It's really troublesome, you know, and, and you see this a lot in, gosh, like I, I've experienced this a lot too, where, where guests are shitty, right? And they, they act up and they say things that are really fucked up to the server or whoever, and you can't say anything, right? Because they're going to just not tip you or walk out or whatever, and you lose that income. And that seems really messed up. Do you think that the current system that we're kind of starting to see a little bit in places like California, New York, where there is like a gratuity free system, do you think that that's a viable solution? Because that's one of those stories that I kind of grapple with and I hear kind of both sides from from folks. And while it removes that relationship between customers and servers for it to be not so dependent it seems like a capitalist solution to a capitalist problem, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, of course, I, I would hope that all roads lead to a universal basic income, but I don't know if we're there yet. You know, um, 
I would hope that this is just a matter of just rearranging some deck chairs on the Titanic of capitalism. But, you know, I think it's going to take a little bit more work and more time to actually get to that point. So, yes, I agree. It's not a perfect solution. It is, you know, it's, it's, it is like on the way to perfect. It is like a good attempt. Um, but I think what really needs to happen to sort of, and this is a, this is a big, very ambitious kind of vision that I have is that people just all the people in this country get some sort of education about what it costs to get food, you know, um, what it costs to have like a latte or, you know, anything given to you by a server in a restaurant in any kind of context, because we don't know the real cost. We don't know what it actually, you know, what all goes into that five ninety nine burger, you know, um, and what sort of sacrifices are being made as far as labor, as far as quality, yada, yada, yada. You know, we don't know. And so people without that context, they, they just are super unwilling to pay extra so that, you know, employees could get more money so they, they can have health insurance. They just don't know. And so they're used to a certain, you know, scale of what to pay for for food. Where do you think that the monetary value that we understand food and pretty much coffee, I would say, I would maybe exclude beer and wine from that, but where do you think we come up with this monetary system? Like what, how did we decide this? Who's <laughs> who decided this? <laughs> um, you know, I, it's hard. I think there's a lot of, as a society, we're still used to a system of servitude, right? And when I say servitude, I also include slavery. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, there's a, there's a large segment of our society that for hundreds of years was used to getting stuff pretty much for free. <laughs> you know, labor for free. Um, all of that stuff. And so that also depressed wages for the serving like the serving class, you know, um, we're not used to paying people who we consider to be beneath us, like a living wage. <laughs> um, when I say us, I mean, just like, you know, people who are in that position to like go to restaurants to be served in any capacity. And so, you know, that is, that's a big hole to crawl out of. You know what I mean? That's my theory. <laughs> no, that's a, great theory. I, I just wrote that down. The idea that we're not used to paying people who we deem beneath us. And I think that really speaks to the idea that we believe so strongly in meritocracy. We believe that there are people who are better or worse than we are and that we should compensate them accordingly. But the way that we create these systems of value don't really make any sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we group like servers and baristas and bartenders and cooks as servants. And, you know, they are the scum of society. <laughs> and because we live in this, this, this sort of system where, you know, we're, we're very much haunted by Calvinism and by um, the like Protestant work ethic and just scaling human morality to their success in like financial and career sorts of spheres. And so, you know, when you go through life assuming that people who are working class, who are poor, are morally less good than you, then why would you want to pay them more to live outside of their station? You know, we are very much a caste society. 
sorry, that haunted me a little bit. (laughs) Um, I was like, oh gosh, we are. And I like, all I can think is like, what do we, what what do we do? Cause it seems like so much of the responsibility to fix that falls on the people who are victimized by it. Right. I mean, that's why I started with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because like she gives me hope. Right. I think she gives a lot of people hope that we can bust out and we can get the means to represent ourselves and also bring our concerns to a greater sphere, you know, beyond our immediate circles. Why do you think we're so afraid of that kind of rhetoric, though? Because, you know, you still have people who are like, well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a socialist. Like what what fear kind of surrounds that idea? Well, I think it's generational, right? Like the baby boomers grew up with socialism, a totally different kind of socialism and communism. Um, You know, they grew up with, you know, the Cold War hanging over them. And, you know, millennials didn't. And so we have a very, I, 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 I like to think that like baby boomers think of the Soviet Union. They think of Vietnam. They think of Cuba when they think of socialism. And we think of, you know, Sweden and Denmark and you know, um, the places that without that were able to succeed in a socialist democracy without like because they weren't tampered with by like the United States. You know what I mean? Like um, like Venezuela, you know, that was very much an act of intervention by the United States. And that's what led them to collapse the way they have, um, which is why I think it's really problematic for people like Meghan McCain to cite to cite Venezuela as like a failure of socialism. But like, no, we, we actually did that to them. So, you know, our generation has, I think, a less, uh, we have less baggage when it comes to thinking about it that way. And so I think it's just a matter of time, really. That's really hopeful. <laughs> I try to be. It's hard. When, when you look at restaurants... What, what do you think is like, I mean, this is a very broad question, um, but like what, what are like some ways that we can find solutions to maybe stop perpetuating some of the class stratification that we see? I think cafes maybe don't suffer from this as much, even though there is a lot of issues with gentrification and coffee shops and creating white spaces. But when I look at the restaurant world, I was like, oh, there's nothing that creates more class stratification than a restaurant. Like there are ways that we value restaurants. There's like $1 sign, $2 sign, $3 signs. When we look at restaurant guides, for example, Mm -hmm. and there are ways that we code in restaurants for like, this is not for you. Right. Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, there's so much about the, you know, front and back divide that contributes to this, you know? Um, there's also the way people hire. And there was this really great study by ROC United. Um, ROC is Restaurant Opportunity Center United um, that talked about how segregation is de rigueur in, in fine dining. You know, you have, for example, in culinary schools, right, you have a pretty balanced gender ratio of people who actually graduate. And then as they advance in their careers, that gender disparity like widens, right? And so there are more men, especially white men in fine dining and more women just kind of being shunted off into 
the lower end of the career scale, right? In like fast food or, you know, um, just like cruise ships, like that sort of thing. Like they, they don't get the same prestige jobs as men, especially white men. And it is very much like just a part of... We talk a lot about tech companies and how they hire based on like culture fits, right? And the same thing happens in restaurants and bars. You know, they hire for a look and they hire for culture fits. And <laughs> that means people of color, especially women of color, don't get, you know, front of house positions as much, especially like the really important ones like Maitre D or um, lead server, captain, that sort of stuff. And by and large, most of the women of color in the food industry work in fast food because those are the industries that will take them. And so there's there's a lot of that, too. Or they work in like they work in the dish pit. They do all sorts of, you know, behind the scenes stuff. And so there's a lot that I don't know. It's just like they, they, they break it down really well. But it's just like the way the hiring happens and the way the promotions are doled out. They really uphold like white supremacist notions of like who belongs in what space. You know, no, that makes complete sense. Because when I think about coffee shops, we do the same things. Hmm. You see way more diversity in hiring at places like Starbucks as hmm. opposed to the specialty market. Yeah, yeah. So, as someone who deals mostly with with the restaurant and the food industry, although you have done a couple of episodes, kind of looking at coffee shops, like where where do you see the similarities and where do you see the differences? I would say there's more flexibility among coffee shops to to remake the the whole institution. You know, I think there's some really awesome examples of coffee shops and bakeries that have been working really hard to upend the models that they've inherited to make something that's a lot more progressive and a lot more equitable for everyone, you know, guests, neighborhoods, communities, and their employees. And so, you know, I think... I don't, for some reason, I think it's because there's a less, there's a lower price of admission, I think, for cafes relative to restaurants. I know they're quite expensive regardless, but, you know, there's more flexibility. There's more accessibility for a more diverse pool of possible, like, owners and entrepreneurs and just people who want to, you know, make their vision a reality. Whereas in restaurants, you know, you need a lot of investment. You need lots and lots of money and so that limits the pool of who can actually open one unless unless they have access to like nonprofits or you know business initiatives that that favor like people of color or immigrants or whatever. I think you're right there is a lower price of admission into the coffee world. You could, you know, find an espresso machine used, find a small space and kind of get started pretty much the minute you can pass a couple of inspections. And I'm interested in the high cost of admission into the restaurant industry because I feel like every time I talk to any restaurateur or anybody who owns a restaurant, it's never operating well. Like that's not a profitable <laughs> place to be. Right. And, and I wonder like with that kind of burden, like how do you upend the system? And right. why is it that we design restaurants to essentially be not the yet not sustainable. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point. And I think that sort of financial unsustainability means that a lot of restaurateurs are operating out of fear. Like that's what informs their choices. And when you're operating out of fear, you can't be generous. 
right? You can't actually think about other people or have empathy for other people because you're you're very much treading water. So how can you save anyone when you were yourself drowning, right? Um, and so like there's a lot that goes into, I don't know, like just after almost a decade of working in restaurants, I can immediately identify like what is, you know, what is fearful about a restaurant and like what what choices have been made and why. And so it's it's troubling. Um, and I think that's why restaurants have been so slow to change. You know, that's why they've been so slow to 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 root out like sexual harassment and like assaults and like people who do those things. And that's why they're so conservative in the choices of who gets to be the chef and like, you know, what kind of food they serve and all of that nonsense. And so, you know, I think there's, I think that's a really good point. Um, especially when you think about the kinds of people who have been changing restaurants and bakeries and cafes, you know, they are the people with a lot less to lose. You know, they have community support or they have support of like larger sorts of nonprofits um, that'll help catch them if they fall. You know what I mean? Um, so it be- because they want to change things up and and they have the community support, they can actually do it. You know, that's a really um, that's a really important combination of things to have in your possession. Yeah, that's it it feels like you have like these two kind of ends of the spectrum. Like you have the people in power, the people who have been successful and have income at the disposal. And like you've mentioned, these are probably the institutions that are going to be the slowest to change because they have the most to lose. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, the people who can make really radical changes because they have very little to lose. And I'm wondering about this kind of like middle, all the people who have a lot to lose, but don't have any money at the same time. And it feels like a lot of the burden of responsibility kind of falls on them to be innovative in certain ways, but at the same time, they also get missed because they don't have the resources to really do anything. So I wonder like, how do we, like, how do they get help? Like, how do we push for innovation in those spaces? Well, you know, I think it's fair to say too, that there are a lot of people who own restaurants who don't want to shake things up. And, you know, they're in that middle category. You know, when you think of like Chinese American restaurants or, you know, your average like Indian buffet place, like they're fine, you know, like they don't, they're fine. They, they figured it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, they figured out a structure that works for them and they can just kind of, because it, it's not about restaurants, you know, it's not, they're not engaging in restaurants as it's like on this meta level. They just want to make a living and support their families. And that's fine. One thing I want to talk about, though, we've been talking a lot about workers and we've been talking a lot about restaurants. But one thing that I think kind of gets missed is consumers and how do we both change the perception that food needs to cost more, essentially, but then also serve people who can't afford more. Like how Mm -hmm. do like food does a really great job of stratifying like the haves and have nots. So like how do we kind of bring everyone in and make things equitable for everybody? There's I'll mention this in a minute, but. I want to hear what you have to say first. <laughs> right. Um, you know, that is, it's interesting because we just saw that Roy Choi closed down local, right? Um, mm-hmm. And this, 
this is like the joint restaurant chain by Roy Choi and Daniel Patterson in like in California, I think, mainly in South and North California. And they just closed it and are converting to catering, which is really interesting because it was their effort to to do what you're saying is to like spread out good food so that people in food deserts could actually access it, you know, through like burgers and, you know, the sort of the mediums that are recognizable by kids and just pretty much anyone. And so that's interesting to me, like that their effort didn't get the support they needed in order to actually succeed and become a viable business model. And I don't know exactly why that happened, but it's telling also that even though there was a lot of lip service paid to them as, you know, people who were innovative and whatever, there's also a lot of troublesome notions of like being saviors, right? And that whole dynamic of, especially because neither of them are like of the races that are predominant in those communities that they were opening, you know, like Patterson's white, Roy is Korean American. And so there's a lot of, there was a healthy amount of skepticism too. And so when we talk about this, all of this is to say that like when we talk about, about making food more equitable, we have to think about being really cognizant of the people who are in these communities who are doing that work and recognizing that they are, and they have been doing that work. Um, and so, you know, like there's a reason why the black Panther party did free breakfasts, you know, because they knew how important it was. And so, I don't know. It's all convoluted. <laughs> but no, I do think no. I do think people are doing it. I think it is it is like a really there are leaders within that world who we can look to. Right. And it's not convoluted at all. I think everything you're saying makes complete sense. It's this idea that the solutions come from maybe this is a little extreme, but they come from the colonizers. Like they come from the people who um have created these systems of inequity and not to say that specifically Roy Choi and Daniel Patterson have done this, but this is a big problem in coffee too, where we expect empowerment to come from the people who are benefiting financially from it, as opposed to the people who need the systems to work for them. Right. Um, I think a lot of what happens too, at least from what I've read, is people... People who aren't a part of that community, they are willing to help as long as it is, you know, air quotes, like financially viable, financially sustainable. And what that translates to is, can I make money off of this? And if you're entering into this relationship with that attitude, then it's not going to work. You know what I mean? No, I know what you mean exactly. And that's hard, though, to think of on the other end. So I'm thinking, so a business model that I do think works, I hope it works, is have you heard of Cuties Coffee in Los Angeles? No, I haven't. So they're a queer-owned coffee shop, and they do a lot of work in their community to bring, like, to create a queer and trans safe space. And the owners themselves identify in that community, and they do a lot of outreach to make sure that everybody who can can't can't get coffee is able to. So there's. Um, like a buyback fund, like if you put in $5, that will support someone who can't afford a coffee, um, a lot of community programs using that space. And 
a lot of the solution comes from them. But then I also was looking at their website and they have a Patreon page. So they also have to depend on the kindness of their community. Cause I imagine that people are only donating if they identify as part of the community themselves. Cause I have a Patreon page too. The people who are donating are people who listen to the podcast and identify with these issues. Mm-hmm. So it's like the solution is coming from our community, but still also depends on the financial resources of our community, which are often very limited. Right. So like, it seems like we're kind of stuck in a conundrum almost. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said though, about the empowering aspect of community funded efforts. You know, um, there's more of a sense of ownership. Whereas, you know, if, if people are coming to your community and they're funded by Pepsi, like I would think there'd be a little bit of skepticism right about the motivations of the corporation in supporting in supporting your people so there's that too like the the flip side is also just you know there's been so much intervention that of course people are going to be skeptical and and things like patreon or like indiegogo or whatever are really helpful for just like being transparent about who is funding things so i like that part actually (laughs) um Especially as someone who has a podcast that is very much like not corporate and not funded by like big companies at all. We barely have any sponsorship. <laughs> so I think that leads to more respect and trust from our audience. Yeah. How do you balance that out? I mean, this is something that I kind of struggle with every day is that I want to do a podcast that is true to my values, but at the same time, like, this is not a thing that makes me money and I want to be able to not wonder like where my next paycheck is coming from. So this is something I str- I like I think about every day is that right. I want to do this, I want to do this with integrity. But do, are those is being financially successful and being Integritous, integrity, having integrity. Um, are they mutually exclusive? I'm not really sure. I don't think so. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think so. I think that if you have, if you if you know what to look for and you know how to advocate for yourself, which is a big ask, um, then you can maintain a sense of ownership and integrity over your creative work. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's really hard. And also just like, you know, why don't you take the Casper mattress check? Like, it's fine, right? <laughs> Not a big deal. It's just a matter of like, especially, it depends on what you're trying to do too. I think for us, we have very much like mission work in a sense. Whereas if someone has a podcast about like petting dogs or, you know, insect noises like they don't really care like it's not a big deal um you know reading a blue apron ad is not going to jeopardize the the seriousness of your work (laughs) if if that makes sense um and so i think it, it, it is very much like just a part of the job description for people like us and you just have to be fine with it and it kind of sucks but again like not thinking about profit is a luxury that I'm willing to take for the sake of the projects that I'm working on, you know, because I'm able to make a living off of writing. And that is such a privilege to be able to do. But, you know, before this point, I think until just a few months ago, I was also making a living as a chef and fitting everything else around those hours. And so, 
you know, there's a way to make it work. It's not awesome, but like if if that's the choice you make, then that's what you live with. Thank you. I needed to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I just like I'm I feel like I'm probably where you were at a couple of years ago where I I write, but I don't make a living off of it. I do this, I don't make a living off of it. I work in a restaurant as a food runner to have a check that is guaranteed money, even though it's not always guaranteed because there's tipped wages on there. Right. And at the same time, I'm on on the other end where I've been, people have asked me like, are you ever going to do sponsorships? And I've had one sponsor before and I'm like, will people take me as seriously? And then I've had other sponsors who I've talked to before who have said we're too radical. I'm in a very small bubble. So Mm -hmm. it's um, maybe a little bit different. Um, I don't have Casper calling me asking to, (laughs) to do, to do ads on my show, but I just, I don't know. I guess, I guess maybe I'm just being a little like candid about some of the struggles that I've had. Um, And Another thing I think a lot about is just the process of interviewing and the process of choosing stories and how do you kind of see, how do you kind of see like your job? Like what it is your mission and what are you trying to do? I'm just more, I'm, this is me kind of getting personal about being, talking to another podcaster. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so much of the choice or so many of the choices that we make are based on like what's interesting to us because we are not beholden to you know, any sort of editorial calendar that is external. Like, it is just very much like, what do we want to do? Which is great, right? We have the freedom to, for example, we read something in The New Yorker, we're like, oh, we should talk to this person. Like, that's the extent of the planning that happens. Or, you know, oh, I'm going to be in Chicago. Like, let me talk to so-and-so. You know, that's how it works. And so that's nice. And then the actual interviewing process you know, it started out pretty awkward because I am not used to interviewing people on air or recording those interviews without extensive editing on paper, right? Um, and so I started off with like just documents full of questions, right? I planned it out. I tried to like say, I like there are some points at which I just read the question verbatim, which was so silly, but I needed that, you know, to start with. And I didn't know how to pivot or like have conversations in a way that sounded natural, especially because, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is that people listen to them because they're really easy to listen to. They're not stilted. They're not fake. And so it's been a struggle. I've been doing this for two, two and a half years now, I believe. And so I feel like I've come a long way. And I would also attribute a lot of my style, I guess, if you'd call it a style, my interview style, to being, to having social anxiety, actually. Can you talk more about that? That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. um, And so I guess the best way to describe it is when I was a kid, I was so nervous about talking to new people that I would ask my little sister, like my baby sister, to order food at restaurants for me. And I was so paralyzed at the thought of saying something wrong or just even engaging with someone new that I couldn't predict that I just couldn't even order food at a restaurant. You know, and, and that's that's a context which is so structured <laughs> and there's a script that the absurdity of that is really striking to me in retrospect. And 
you know, talking to people has always been really hard for me. And over the years, I got into this sort of habit of scripting things out in my head in the moment. And so I'm really good at it, like concurrent um, path branching, I guess I could call it. And so I think about all the possible things I could say to someone. And then I think about all the directions the conversation could go based on those things. And then I just sort of project onward and onward. And so I'm able to, it's almost like disassociate, which is kind of a bad thing, but also like helpful in this context where I just think about the game of the conversation and I am able to guide the conversation based on my projections about, you know, what I know about the person and where it could go. The reason I ask is this reminds me of something that I used to do, especially when I was in high school, is that I would sit in the shower and like have a conversation with somebody else that I knew I was going to have so I could practice. Because <laughs> uh, I felt the same way too, where I was uh-huh. like, I don't, I have to know all the ways that this conversation can go. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And something that I really appreciate about podcasting is that it forces me to be vulnerable in a very different way that I've never been used to. It forces me, and it also forces me to listen really well. Yeah, definitely. And, and I really, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Um, I've been listening to, have you ever listened to the turnaround? Yes. It's, I, I'm so, I love listening to other people interview each other who also interview because I've just, I, I've like, I'm now obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with the idea that like there is no one moment in your day where you are really forced to pay attention to somebody else. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you get the same enjoyment from, from that as I do. Um, It makes me really like asking questions and it really likes, it really makes me like just kind of figuring out where someone's going to go. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's why I really like propaganda, actually, because propaganda's subject matter is a lot more broad than racist sandwich. And so I'm able to become an expert in a huge variety of things. And that's one of my favorite things is just like read all the Wikipedia pages for like everything. And so I, you know, our most recent episode is about pro wrestling and I have no knowledge of it beyond some personal experience watching TV, you know, and so engaging with people about the things they're excited about. Like the guests were like super excited about pro wrestling. Like that was really awesome. And knowing how to pull out like a really good tape from someone who has a passion about the thing you're talking about. It's so exhilarating. That's cool to hear. I'm really excited to listen to that episode now. I know nothing about pro wrestling. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I learned so much just in talking to the people I talked to. It was really great. What are some of your favorite podcasts? Oh, man. Um, I'm actually really enjoying The Bright Sessions. <laughs> uh, it's a great fiction podcast, and it's just, you know, really voice acted extremely well. And I, I also like Flash Forward, which is a nonfiction podcast about science and the future and just sort of speculative thoughts about what is going to happen. Um, technology wise I think that's really cool and let's see what else do I listen to I think those are the two main ones actually most of the time I'll like dabble like in turnaround or code switch or you know all sorts of the ones that people listen to but those are the ones I listen to consistently 
Yeah, I feel like I'm still still scratching the surface podcast wise. I feel like I'm, like my when people ask me like what I listen to, they're still kind of like basic, I think. <laughs> um which is fine. Uh but but it's good to it's good hearing someone else uh suggest things I had actually never heard of. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, right? Like right. I, it's it is funny and I'm sure you feel this too. It's like, it's funny to see other people recommend your own podcast. You know, when people have like, I'm going on a road trip. Like, what should I listen to? You know? And you see like, Oh, like race sandwich. Cool. <laughs> like, uh, I love that. I think it's so interesting how all of that works just, and how people share our work. It's just really, it feels good. Do you edit your podcast at all? Like, do you personally edit it? No. Well, I guess, Editing is kind of a broad word, right? Yeah. So for propaganda, I, I do sort of like I do all the interviews and then I write down exactly the timestamps and exactly the portions of the interviews I want us to use in a script. Um, and so it's very hands on. and It's very involved. And then the, the producer cuts them apart and like, you know, balances everything and adds music and all that stuff. And so it's pretty collaborative. And same with Racist Sandwich. And so we do a lot of, you know, commentary on drafts and we make suggestions and all that stuff right that makes sense you guys do a more produced sort of final product than we do um because mostly like what i'm going to do is listen to this take out some of like the pauses and maybe some of the ums and that's probably to the extent of editing that i'll do Mm -hmm. as i do this more and more though i can't listen to my own voice so (laughs) oh wow it's it's yeah it becomes kind of problematic for me like if if I want to turn this around really fast I'll actually ask someone else to help me because it, I need some distance from it like I if in like a week I can do this but uh-huh. like I can't listen to this in an hour mm-hmm. that's so funny want, it usually works you, the other way around where like people start off really um, put off by their own voice and then they just get used to it I think it's because I'm more critical now mm. okay yeah I could see that but I was just wondering how you kind of deal with hearing your own voice in certain places. Like, does it still freak you out? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been in very annoying situations where people will put on my podcast, like in the car. I'm just like, man, I don't want to hear this right now. <laughs> um, but otherwise, no, it's fine. I have some distance from it because it's just like I said, like I sort of disassociate a little bit when I do interviews as an interviewer. And so... I'm able to sort of examine it on like a meta level very quickly because I already have been doing it. That makes sense. I need to do that better. I feel like I'm the opposite where I not necessarily feel more comfortable interviewing. That's not quite the right word, but like I feel more vulnerable when I interview, like I'm searching, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting a part of me out that I don't normally have out. So I guess that's why listening to it can be a little bit more difficult for me. So, but I'm, I'm just like super fascinated by how other people approach interviewing at the same time though. I love it. Like when I was a coffee shop manager, like I loved interviewing new hires. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite thing to do. And I hired people if they were good at asking me questions too, Mm -hmm. but that's just me being nerdy. Um, (laughs) With that being said, how can people find you? Yeah. So um, my podcasts are online. You can find Propaganda on the Bitch Media website. That's bitchmedia.org. And Racist Sandwich at racistsandwich.com. And you can also find more of my work just on my website, which is soleilho.com. Soleil, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate 
you taking the time to kind of indulge every weird direction I went in. (laughs) No problem. Thank you for having me. Boss Barista was created by me, Ashley Rodriguez, and made in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading brand studio, editorial platform, and podcast devoted to the many issues worth discussing around the things that we eat and drink. You can learn more at goodbeerhunting.com. Please check out their website. There are so many incredible articles that I find myself looking at constantly over and over looking for advice about how we can be better in the coffee industry. They're doing a great job and they're helping us make this podcast for you folks. So goodbeerhunting.com. Go ahead, check them out.